Hey everybody, quick announcement. Some of you have been asking how you can hear the show without ads. Like, is there a way to pay for that? And now the answer is yes, with Stitcher Premium. Our entire archive is in Stitcher Premium completely ad-free. Stitcher Premium also has more than 300 hours of exclusive original shows and over 120 comedy albums. It is all inside the Stitcher app. Subscribing to Stitcher Premium is also a great way to support this show. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash longshort, and with the code longshort, you'll get a one-month free trial. That's stitcherpremium.com slash longshort. This is Matt Katz. It is 9.53 p.m. Just put both of my kids to bed, and I'm here to try to figure out what I'm going to say to my daughter. Matt Katz is one of my favorite reporters. He recorded this tape for us in his makeshift home studio, his bedroom closet. I could just say, hey, sweetie, after dinner tonight and after your bath and after whatever terrible Nickelodeon or Disney show you're going to watch tonight, I have a family secret I want to tell you that's going to absolutely blow your mind. I'm not sure how well that will go over. So... The other thing I was thinking was I could do it journalistically, like just as I would report a story on the air in my day job, kind of just give the facts and tell the story chronologically, Um, who, what, when, where, and why. I don't know Matt very well. I've met him once, but I've been following him for years on the radio in his bold coverage of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and the Bridgegate scandal. I love how unfazed Matt seems when Christy yells at him, talks smack to him, as the governor is known for doing with reporters. In fact, those tense moments seem to drive Matt to ask harder, more pointed questions. So it kind of threw me when I heard this tape he recorded in his closet, fretting over a thing he wanted to tell his daughter. I've procrastinated on it because I'm, I'm just nervous. Uh, it seems crazy. I'm nervous to talk to a five-year-old. The thing Matt Katz was afraid to tell his five-year-old? It's that he hasn't always been Matt Katz. No. I was born Matthew Russakow. R-U-S-S-A-K-O-W. I still remember how I memorized how to spell it as a kid. It had sort of a rhythm. R-U-S-S-A-K-O-W. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank, and today we'll hear the story of how Matt Russakow became Matt Katz and how that transition is wrapped up in decades of family mess. I think we've all got these things in our past, right? Things about our histories that we're afraid to reveal to the people that we love. It can be especially hard to reveal this stuff to our kids, that all is not what it seems, and that the truth about our past, it's made us kind of screwed up, but it also makes us who we are. Well, today we'll listen in as one brave man tells his young daughter where he really comes from. But first, let's be good journalists and cover the who, what, when, where, and why. Why? Um, I I hope she doesn't ask that because I don't really know. That's part of what I've been thinking about myself for the last 35 years. Okay, so the where of this story is simple. New York City. When? 35 years ago. Who? Well, that's where it starts getting complicated. Let's start with Matt's mother and father. I mean... It's almost hard to 
<laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me um, that they were married. Matt's parents split when he was a year old. He has no memory of them being together, except for a picture of his father lifting him in the air. After the divorce, Matt's father was supposed to visit every weekend. But it was not nearly that often. I didn't have his uh, phone number, so it was when he would call and uh, say he wanted to come see me that we would go out. Uh, he, he would take me out in the... Um, this red station wagon. It was always dusty in the back seat. I remember because probably nobody was ever in there. And uh, he would uh, take me to this place called David's Cookies in New York. Um, every mm. time I saw him, with like the giant chocolate chunks, right? Exactly, exactly. Unbeknownst to anybody, though, I had a food allergy, so um, that was I was allergic <laughs> to milk. So I would have these chocolate cookies, and then then he would drop me off at my mother's, and I'd be I'd be sick every time. <laughs> so I remember that. Oh, I think I only went to his apartment once, and uh, I remember there were dishes in the sink. And that, that like, imp- blew my mind because there were never dishes in my sink at home because once you, you eat, you wash the dishes and then you put them away. Uh, and uh, that, that um, says something about the, the difference in their personalities. Matt also can't imagine his mom doing what his father did that time they went to the zoo. And um, he either didn't want to pay or didn't have the money and he lifted up um, the fence at the side of the zoo so I could uh, scoot under and we could avoid paying admission but I knew at the time that this wasn't this wasn't right Matt never really knew when the next outing was coming And since they didn't have his father's number, Matt's mom, Roberta, couldn't even call to find out his plans. She also didn't know where he lived. If she needed to reach him, she'd have to call her ex-mother-in-law, ask her to call Matt's father, and then have him call her back. When Matt's father did take him out, she'd worry, with good reason, too. He took Matt to off-track betting so he could put money on the ponies. Now, Matt was too young to know why at the time, but his parents' relationship was chaotic. He later found out that his father had racked up a lot of debt, thousands of dollars on a credit card with Roberta's name on it. A collection agency came calling, and ultimately she wound up paying it off. On top of it all, Matt's father wasn't paying child support, and he never sent Matt birthday gifts. He was full of disappointments, but he offered just enough cookies and adventure to string along Matt's expectations. Then, when Matt turned four... Something truly remarkable happened when he was out with his mom. So it was, it's one of my first memories ever. I believe we were in Brooklyn and we were like by the river. Like on the promenade? Yeah, exactly. Or like you can see, you can see New Jersey across the way and it's very scenic. It was, it was quite scenic. And uh, my mom stepped away for a little bit to go buy ice cream Um which I probably had an allergic reaction to, I'm sure. Roberta didn't leave him by himself. Someone else was there with them, a man. He crouched down to Matt's height. And he said he wanted to marry my mom because he was very much in love with her. But he wanted to know if I was uh, was okay with that because he 
saw himself also marrying me. <clears throat> I said, if I married your mom and moved in with you, would you like that? This is Richard, the guy from the promenade. Would, would you like me as part of your family? And he shook his head, yes. Do you remember how you responded? Your little four-year-old self? I remember, like, I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking, I'm not old enough to understand what you're talking about. I remember thinking that it, I was in above my head and that it was, it was, um, it was heavier. It was a heavier thing than I really could comprehend. So Matt said that he felt like, um, like you were kind of proposing to him too. Um, yes. Did it feel that way to you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Why did you feel the need to do that? I was planning on coming into their home as part of their family, and he was the prime member of the family beforehand, so it was my place to ask permission. And if not, to find out why not and what I could do to become uh, a member of the family. Matt has no recollection of having met Richard before the proposal. I mean, he was four. But Richard had been dating Roberta for two years. And he'd met Matt when he came to pick up Roberta for their first date. And I walked in and there's this little boy, adorable. He was at the perfect stage, no more diapers, but developing his personality. And I, you know, it's my first impression. Richard and Roberta had met at a single parent support group. They'd bonded over their mutual belief that children should be raised with gentle discipline, that as a parent, you should listen to your kids. Richard had two girls of his own from a previous marriage, ages 12 and 15. Now, Richard says he was thrilled to have little Matt's blessing to marry Roberta. And less than a year later, they had a wedding. Matt was the ring bearer. I wore a suit and a clip-on tie. It was at the Essex House in Manhattan. Of course, as you've probably guessed, Richard's last name is Katz. When we come back... Matt Katz, the intrepid reporter, is born after an epiphany during a rendition of the most cliched song about absent dads. Stay with us. (laughs) We're back with one of my favorite reporters, Matt Katz. When we left off, Matt's mom had just married Richard, his stepfather. Soon after the wedding, Richard moved in with Matt and his mom and his grandma in their apartment in Queens. Then they all moved to a house together, one neighborhood over. I was one of his parents. I uh, had equal time in raising him. When Matt got appendicitis, it was Richard who took him to the hospital. When Matt joined Little League, Richard became a fanatical supporter, helping out at games, yelling from the sidelines, even though he didn't like baseball. I would take him skiing. We biked. I was a big biker at that point. I had I had this, like, present uh, male figure. You know, there was, there was definitely, like, a more um, stability to, to the home life after that. Instead of, like, sneaking under fences at the zoo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I did still see my um, biological father. He was just uh, less and less... It, 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 was, it was much more sporadically. 
seeing his father less just made Matt wonder about him more. Wondered where he lived. I wondered, you know, what he did all day, what his job was. I wondered where my other relatives were, like his parents, my grandparents on that side. Um, like why I wasn't in more contact with them. Like, why don't any of them seem to give a shit about me? Why doesn't he? It was, it was confusing. It was difficult. I thought about it a lot. By the time Matt was seven, it felt weird to be a Russicow. Like to have this name that belonged to a guy who was basically a big black box to Matt. I had grown a little bit uncomfortable having a different last name than my parents. I remember as a kid not liking it in that it was sometimes confusing at school. I had no siblings. I had no uh, contact, very little contact with anybody on the Russicow family. And um, I was interested in changing my name. He asked if he could have my name. And we did everything legally and asked his birth father, uh, who basically took him out to his car and gave him a cross-exam to make sure that I had not forced him to change his name. Richard vividly recalls watching this from inside the house. Looked like Matt's father was yelling at him. Funny thing about memory, Matt and his mom don't remember this happening at all, which is actually true of a lot of details in this story. Everyone remembers them a little differently. But, you know, the basic plot points match up. Everyone agrees Matt's biological father ultimately agreed to the name change. We went, and I remember the date. It was December 15th, and we went to court. I left school and uh, formally and officially changed my name to Katz. Um, and what that meant was that my birth certificate to this day uh, has no remnant of Russicow on there. Um, so the Matthew Russicow name... Uh, doesn't exist, and it's almost like it never existed. It's as if Richard Katz was there when I was born. When did you start calling him dad? <sighs> That's interesting. It was um, it was after my name changed, and I was calling him Richard for a long time. And um, my grandmother lived with us. That was my uh, my mom's mom. And I remember her strongly suggesting that I start calling him dad, that he would like that. And I remember it being a process to try to like change how, what I called him. Um, changing my last name was an easier thing for me than changing the name that I called him. And the way I distinguish it in my head is he's my dad and this other guy's my father. Dad was more intimate, father more formal, distant. The language I felt, even from the beginning, was important just to make sense of my own, like, heart and emotion. Matt was so disappointed by his father that he'd killed off his last name. Still, he felt an inexplicable pull toward this man, which, like in every other relationship in our lives, if someone does something so hurtful that we cut them off, we tend to walk away. Like, we may be distraught, but we generally find a way to move on. But often, with parents, we can become delusional, 
believing that one day they'll change if we just wait long enough, because the alternative, I guess, is just too depressing to think about. So Matt waited. One night, when he was eight, the phone rang. And I answered the phone. Um, it was like, I think it was like a Friday night or a Saturday night. And uh, he, it was him. And then I kind of like pressed him on the fact that I didn't have his phone number and I didn't get to see him. And I, this was at the heart of the Cold War. <laughs> and I said to him, I was going to get, get I, was, I remember these words exactly. I said, I'm going to sick the FBI on you. <laughs> because because we used to like my friends and I would play like FBI versus KGB games I think with like mm-hmm. you know running around because it was Cold War so I was going to sick the FBI on you I don't know why I said sick but I did Matt's father hung up on his eight year old son and that was it he didn't call back weeks went by months. It was shortly after that when he stopped talking to me and I had no contact with anybody in his family that my mom and my stepfather told me that they were concerned that if something were to happen to my mother, that I would end up uh, with this Russicow family that I knew nothing about and had no contact with. Uh, It was sort of a jarring thing to hear as a child, but I understood it. Um, And they told me that they thought it was best if Richard Katz adopted me. So at that point, I sort of proposed to him again and asked him if he he would like to uh, have me actually adopt him so he was my legal son and uh, he said yes and at that point I think he had um oh what were those dolls that they sold years ago cabbage patch kids cabbage patch he had a cabbage patch kid which comes with an adoption paper right he had that before I actually adopted him because he was a little older at that point so he knew what adoption was and it was he was happy uh, to have me adopt him. Happy, but it was complicated. The whole concept behind it, the reason for it was all upsetting for my, you know, eight, nine-year-old brain. And again, I didn't have anybody, I wasn't going through it with anybody. Um, so it was, it, was, it was pretty isolating. That was harder than the name change. It seemed more permanent And so did that feel like a betrayal of your biological father at all? I don't know if that's the word I would have used at the time. Um, I mean, I didn't know, part of me didn't know if this was right, I think. But I didn't know why it wouldn't have been. They, as part of the, in due course, as part of the adoption process, they had, they, you know, reached out to him and my, and other relatives, the lawyers did. And, you know, they never objected to it. He never objected to it. Roberta says they were required by law to post an ad in the paper for a while to prove in court that they had properly notified him. Matt finished elementary school, middle school, moved to Long Island when he was 12, started high school, all the while consumed with a burning curiosity about his father. Did he still live in New York? Did he have another family? Why the hell did he disappear? I wondered if he was alive. 
it, it was a, it was a significant part of my, you know, psychological matter. This was pre-internet. So Matt didn't really have a way to track his father down. But I, I when I was 16, I was, uh, <laughs> it's kind of cheesy, but I was playing, uh, I was playing the piano. I was just playing the piano at home. I used to play the piano. Uh, and I was playing Cats in the Cradle. And the cats in the cradle and the suits. The uh, song about <laughs> fathers and sons. When you're coming home, dad, I don't know when. And my mother was like sitting there in the living room reading the paper or whatever. And I said, Mom, do you ever wonder what happened to my biological father? And she said, yes, I do. <laughs> and I said, um, uh, I said, is I don't know if I asked how to reach him, but she did say that if, you know, I could always try to find his brother in California. A few weeks later, Matt was at a high school dance and he was all up in his head. Teen angst and wondering who I am and where I come from. And I came home from this uh, dance and it was like 11 o'clock or midnight East Coast time, but it was like 9 o'clock California time. Um, so I dialed the operator in California. Um, you know, remember? Dial zero or 411. I remember. Yeah. And, uh, and I asked for um, my uncle, and they connected me, and a woman answered. Turned out it was his uncle's wife. She said the uncle was at work. He'd call back. A couple of hours later... I had my own phone in my room. So a couple hours later, like 12.30, 1 o'clock at night, um, my uncle called me. And uh, I was kind of proud of myself that I went and found him, me, a budding journalist. I was able to like track this guy down. And we had this nice conversation. Then I asked if I could have my father's phone number. And uh, he said um, he said he'd get back to me on that. Did he? Yeah, a couple of days later, he called and said, he wants to call you. <laughs> Which is the same, you know, the same thing about not having his phone number, like when I was eight. Um, but I, um, I was so curious to talk to him that I said, okay. A few days later, the phone rang. Matt picked up. And he said, what do you want? Yeah. What did you tell him you wanted? You know, I, I honestly, um, <clears throat> the rest of that conversation, I've never remembered. Like, I remember not remembering it the next day. All Matt knows is there was some blowout argument, his father talking smack about his mom. And there were definitely no apologies for abandoning him which, of course, is what Matt had been fantasizing about all these years. But he kept calling. Like every week or so. And Matt would take the calls. He's not sure why exactly. Something about the power of biological ties. And even at the tender age of 16, he had this feeling like if he had kids one day, he'd want them to know their biological grandfather, no matter how much he'd been scarred by him. If we weren't talking about what had transpired over the la- or hadn't transpired over the last eight years. Uh, if we hadn't, if we weren't talking about our relationship, um, we actually uh, got along okay. What would you talk about? I'd talk about the Mets, 
Um, I think we talked a little bit about politics. He had sort of a um, sarcastic, shit-talking sense of humor that was, you know, something I related to because that's what that's how me and my friends in high school used to talk to each other. Matt finally convinced his father to give him his number. And a few months in, they decided to take their reunion to the next level, see each other in person. And it turned out he lived like, you know, 15 minutes away from me the whole time. And... Wow, what was that like to find out? Yeah, it was wild. It blew my mind. Couldn't believe it. I hadn't seen him in eight years. (laughs) He had to describe himself. He told me he'd be the guy wearing the tan members-only jacket. How did you describe yourself? I'll be the awkward 16-year-old in in his mother's Maxima. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I don't. I don't think I. I don't think I describe myself. I. Yeah. I mean, you're like, clear. I'll find you. Yeah, I'll find you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, sure enough, I got there. He was outside, like one of those. You know, I think he was like Bennigan's, one of those. Um, you know, restaurants where they those chain restaurants that they pretend is like a mm-hmm. local restaurant with all the flair on the wall. When I first saw him, he was smoking a Marlboro Light 100. There was no hug. I shook his hand. And then we went in, and uh, he like ordered, we, we like ordered cokes and and um, food, and then we like we just like shot the shit. I think we talked about the Mets. Those good old Mets. Well, Matt and his father saw each other every few months. His father would fill him in on his relatives, the side of the family that Matt had never known, and eventually he flew Matt out to California to meet them. Did he ever say anything about, like, regretting no. not being in touch Never. with you? It was almost, it was, a lot of times it was almost like it didn't happen. I mean, he had told my relatives that he was in touch with me all these years. He told them I liked math. I found this out later when I went out there. He had told them I liked math and that um, I, I was interested in going to the University of Michigan which is actually true. I applied to the University of Michigan. <laughs> I didn't like math, though. Um, so, uh, no, it was almost as if it didn't exist. It was almost as if it didn't happen. And they never really, I, I don't know if they really fully ever believed me because it did, just didn't make any sense. How could you, what do you mean you didn't have any contact with him? He was, you know, he, we would talk to him on the phone all the time and he'd tell us what you were up to for eight years. Matt says that on phone calls, his father would randomly fly off the handle, blaming Roberta and Richard for why he didn't see Matt all those years, claiming they'd manipulated the divorce lawyer into wrangling the adoption without his consent. Apparently, he'd never seen the ads in the paper or the letters from the lawyer. Roberta's best guess is he'd ripped them up before reading them, maybe thinking they were yet more child support letters. When Matt's father would get confrontational, Matt would sometimes argue back. Sometimes he'd try and shut it down. But often, those conversations would end with his father hanging up. This went on until Matt was in his early 30s. Matt didn't invite his father to his wedding. He didn't want to subject his mom to seeing him. They stopped talking for a while. Then, when Matt's wife was pregnant, he gave his father a call. And I thought that, you know, he might... He would want to know that there was a uh, grandchild on the way. 
And um, he said that he didn't care and that the his family didn't like me, nobody likes me. Um, and he was uh, upset about the, the legal situation. Um, he had owed my mother uh, lots of money from child support from before the adoption, from the early 80s. And my mother was never able to recover that money. Uh, but once he started collecting Social Security, she was able to sue him and, and you know, get some of that money back. Which, this is not a thing I knew a person could do. So, uh, that was it. And, um, I believe he hung up on me and that was the uh, last time we spoke. It's been about six years. So, so who do you think of as your real dad? Oh, Richard, by far. He's totally my real dad. Um, his whole being wants to, wants to help and do whatever he can for you. And that goes, that extends from my mother to me, to my wife, to my kids. So when my car was stolen in Manhattan, when I was right out of college and he drove 45 minutes from Long Island, um, to, to bring the title for my car to go to the police station And then while he was looking for a spot, he found my car because it wasn't actually stolen. I just didn't remember where I parked it. He called me up, not angry, um, but ecstatic because my car wasn't stolen and so happy about it. Not even giving me shit about it. Just happy for me that my car wasn't stolen. And then he drove 45 minutes back to Long Island. That dad, whose biggest flaw appears to be being too nice... That's the kind of dad Matt aspires to be. And uh, I've, I've gotten that from him, for sure. But um, there, there, there's a part of me that uh, also feels quite comfortable, you know, in a shitty, smoky bar under an elevated train track um, in a shitty part of town. Um, both literally and proverbially, I guess. And this part of Matt, he says, comes from his father. Because who your parents are, that shapes you. Even if, and maybe especially if, they're not around. And then, once you have kids of your own, you can't help but parent based on whatever went down with your parents. Being abandoned by his father is a huge part of Matt's history. And surely it'll influence his parenting in one way or another, whether he's aware of it or not which is maybe part of why Matt felt so compelled to share his history with his five-year-old, which he will do in just a minute. Don't go away. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. (laughs) We are back with Matt Katz, who's a dad to Ruben, age two, and Sadie, age five, which he decided was a good age to tell her his tale of two fathers. I really don't want this information to randomly come out uh, following a bunch of her questions at a awkward time or at an inappropriate time or at a time where we really can't talk. Um, so 
that's why I want to be preemptive about it. I also think it's not fair for her to have to ask questions to find out this very significant detail about my life and therefore her life. Uh, I, I think I should tell her and it shouldn't be a result of her doing journalism. As we heard earlier, though, Matt was nervous about the big reveal, sat in his home recording studio, a.k.a. his closet, psyching himself up to talk to Sadie. It could absolutely go awry. I think my biggest concern at this point is that inherent in this discussion is some basic understanding of the birds and the bees and how because because how else do I explain the difference between a biological father and an adopted father without in some way acknowledging that men are involved in the childbirth process or at least at the very first stage and I, I don't think I've googled enough about how you're supposed to have the birds and the bees talk in order to be prepared to get into that. Matt goes on like this for a while. Penises and vaginas, it would be it would be helpful to have uh, a woman And you might be wondering, you. like I did when I heard this tape, about all the other questions Sadie might ask. Like, what if she hears this story and worries that her parents might get divorced or that Matt might leave her or why this other grandfather has never wanted to meet her? Well, as Matt prepared for this conversation, he had no idea what wild card his daughter might throw him. And that idea terrified him. But then he reassured himself. So she's really fascinated by how our cat Schmelvis was adopted from the pound. And the fact that he has these parents out there, or, or did at least, whom we don't know and won't ever know. And how he's lucky, we tell, we tell Sadie that Schmelvis is lucky because we, we adopted him and we are now his parents. So she has this like understanding of adoption that I think might be a good launching pad to getting into my own story. Um, hey, daddy's just like Schmelvis. Several days later, Matt sat down with Sadie in their living room, turned on his recorder. This was a big moment, and he felt like he'd want to be able to look back on it, and maybe she would too. So the thing I want to tell you about is about our family, and I was waiting until you were five years old before I told you about this, and since we couldn't find a play date today, I thought today would be a good day to tell you. So you ready to hear this thing about our family that you never knew about before? What? So you know how Pop-Pop used to be married uh-huh. to another woman who is Aunt Sarah's mom? Yeah. So Mimi used to be married too. Really? She was married to somebody who was my father before Pop-Pop. Really? And Mimi and uh, my father before Pop-Pop, they're the ones who made me. And they got divorced. You know what that means? What does it mean? It means they stopped being married. And then Mimi found another husband, Pop-Pop. And then... Um, what? And then... Later on, when I was a little bit older, Pop-Pop adopted me. So he became my real dad. 
Really? Yep. What do you think about that? That was cool. That's cool. And and that's cool. So how did it go? I mean, it was pretty anticlimactic, I thought. Uh, she, she asked about mommy's family, and I said, oh, no, they're boring. Don't worry about that. And... <laughs> And then, and then that, and then that was it. She was kind of bored, and then uh, she started singing, freestyling as she does about her um, friend who moved to New Jersey, and that she misses her friend, and that she was sad about it. Oh, oh, you wanna be me? I wanna be somebody who ever knows what. Whoever should be, I want to be And you. in my mind, and I still believe this, I think she I was extracting some of the emotion that I was trying to convey and putting it into song. And she was like, I can relate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She's like, that's not really that interesting about your biological father that you have no contact with. I have a friend, and I haven't seen her in a month, and here's my song about her. That is me. Do you have any other questions? No. You still love Pop-Pop just the same, right? Even though, even though he wasn't my... My first father, right? Yeah. You know, me, my, I never wanted my desire to to find my biological father um, to uh, affect my relationship with him or to make him think that it had anything to do with my relationship with him. It, it was it was separate from it, but it's hard. It might be hard for him to separate the two, like. Um, why, why would I be needing to go out and find a new dad when I had one? And, uh, my biggest concern about this whole exercise is that she takes the information and translates it in some way that is insensitive to my dad, meaning her pop pop, um, in a way that upsets him. Like, you're not my real pop-pop. Uh, that would be really painful for me and certainly for him. And it would I would regret having told her at this point for sure. Are you nervous that she might say something that, no, that'll upset not at all. you? Not at all. Not at all. Matt's nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just grab her and kiss her. <laughs> Maybe tickle her, <laughs> because I hope I have shown my grandchildren they could not be more than mine, that the biology doesn't mean very much. Richard is glad that Matt's sharing his history with Sadie. He knows that understanding your genetics is important as you get older, which one day that'll probably matter to her. But for now... She's like, yeah, that's fine. Can I go back to watching Paw Patrol? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In my mind, though, I'm like, oh, no, this is a big deal for her. She just doesn't know it yet, right? In my head, I'm like, 
Eventually, whether it's when she's seven or nine, we're going to have a big emotional conversation about this and she's going to understand the weight of it. And we're going to connect on that level. Even in that moment, you're like, she is freestyling and telling me stories that are totally related to this. And she's internalizing it. Yeah, I'm trying to. (laughs) I am trying. Right. I am trying to. She is dealing with this in in a in a such a complicated deep way that we can barely understand because it's so significant. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh my god. Um, I know in a way I wonder if that's similar to like my the the conversation my dad at my age now Richard had with me at Sadie's age now, uh, telling me that he was going to, you know, in love with me and going to marry me. And I am like imparting this heavy thing on her. Yeah. And she's like, that's not that cool, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Katz is a reporter at New York Public Radio, where he is now covering topics like immigration and national security. Stay tuned later this month for his episode on the podcast, The United States of Anxiety. He'll be talking about the culture wars around Islam in the United States. Also, check out some of Matt's gutsy political reporting in his great book, American Governor, Chris Christie's Bridge to Redemption. We have got links to all of those things on our website, longestshortesttime.com. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. Is there a piece of your past that you want to reveal to your kid or your parents, but you don't know how? Let us know in the comments for this episode. That's episode 127. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Kristen Clark and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We also use music this week from Kevin McLeod, Trevor DeClerc, Johnny Ripper, and the Batteries Duo. We get editorial support from Amory Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rika Murthy. We will be back in a few weeks, you guys, with a slate of brand new episodes. The first one drops on July 12th. And at that point, we're going to have some big, exciting announcements to share with you. But our newsletter subscribers will hear them first. So make sure you are subscribed to that, which you can do at our website or our Facebook page. And of course, subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. Tell us something surprising, something funny, something that turned your understanding of what it means to be a parent or a kid upside down. Go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. Bye, guys. See you soon. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and my new podcast is LeVar Burton Reads. In each episode, I'll handpick a different piece of short fiction and read it to you. We'll dive into work from all different genres, from fantasy to mystery to comedy, and of course, my go-to science fiction. Throw in a little music, some original sound design, and each story will be a whole new adventure. In the first episode, I've chosen one of my favorite pieces called Ken by Bruce McAllister. It's a great story about a young boy who contacts an alien assassin in the hopes of saving his sister's life. 
Here's a sneak peek. Who is it that you wish to have killed? The voice asked, and the boy almost looked up. It was only a voice, mechanical, snake-like, halting, he reminded himself. By itself, it could not kill him. Uh, a man named James Ortega Mambay, the boy answered. Why? The word hissed in the stale apartment air. He is going to kill my sister. I hope you'll join me for LeVar Burton Reads. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And I'll see you next time. Stitcher. 